The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance, dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. Hello, fellow Liberty Warriors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way uh, to make a podcast. It's free uh, for starters. There's also uh, an awesome creation tool. If you don't want to hire a producer right away, you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone, right from your computer, anywhere you are, at any time. It's uh, distributed for you, so that's really important. Once you record this, you need to get it to the right platform. They will do that for you, including on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many, many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast. It's all in one place. It's very easy to use. So give Anchor a try. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm to get started. We welcome to another podcast with the Global uh, Liberty Alliance coming to you from the Commonwealth of Virginia, right across the river from Washington, D.C., where we're joined today by Toby Dershowitz, uh, a longtime policy expert uh, from the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy, is a nonpartisan think tank based in Washington, D.C. She's a national security expert, uh, an expert in cyber and sanctions and Middle East. And of course, the topic that we're going to jump into today, illicit networks in Latin America. Uh, she's uh, been on the forefront of this issue for quite some time. So Toby, it's great having you with us today. How are you doing? Thanks so much for inviting me to join this podcast with you, Jason. Well, it's a pleasure having you. And uh, I know that uh, we share uh, a lot of common friends over there at FDD, Cliff May, and so, so many others. So, you know, keep up the good work that y'all are doing. I know that uh, as a sanctions lawyer, I uh, especially enjoy your work in combating illicit terrorist financing. I think it's something that you don't hear much about it. It may not be the most uh, lively topic for the evening news or even a podcast even, but it's important. And I think that's how you uh, one of the many weapons we have to combat uh, some of these evildoers right here in, in even in the Western Hemisphere. So what is it about Iran, for example, and Hezbollah that they find so appealing uh, before we get into the specific issues that we're going to jump into it. Why do they gravitate to a place like Latin America? Sure. Well, first of all, maybe useful just to know that Hezbollah is a terrorist group based in Lebanon, but as you know, it has operations around the world and it receives about $700 million or so a year from Iran to operate. And it gets additional money from engaging in malign activities. It was found in, in the early eighties by Iran and has carried out operations in places like Lebanon against U.S. and French peacekeeping forces. In fact, in 1983, 241 U.S. service members uh, were killed, along with 58 um, uh, French service members and six civilians. So 
in but but let's talk about Latin America, which is so important because it's in our very own backyard. Uh, first of all, there I would point to two uh, terrorist attacks that are very noteworthy in Latin America, and both of them happened in Argentina. Uh, the first one was in 1992, and it was an Iranian-backed terrorist attack by Hezbollah um, against the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires. That killed 29 people and wounded 252 Argentinians and others. And then there was another attack also in Argentina uh, two years later, and it was an attack on the Amia Jewish Community Center. That killed 85 people, Jews and Christians, young and old, and wounded hundreds more. Now, the investigation into this particular attack, I think, is very instructive for many reasons. First of all, let me just say that um, there are terrorist attacks that happen uh, practically every day in different parts of the world, and all of them are, are uh, terrible and tragic, and especially when they cause loss of life. These are things that uh, Americans and others never, never get over. But let me tell you why I think it might be useful to, to focus on this one in, in particular. First of all, let me just set the scene about what happened uh, in Argentina. Hey, Anto hey Antobi, mm. um, interesting timeline that you put out there for folks. So the first one was in 92, that other one in 94. Right in the middle of that one was the first attack on the World Trade Center in 93 in New York. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. anyway, so, so keep going. Keep no, going. That, 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 that's, a good, that's a good point uh, to make. So uh, the, the Amia Center, uh, community center, is on a, a street called Pasteur Street. It was a very active, busy street in Argentina. And it, it housed uh, not just people from the Jewish religion who, um, who, who came to uh, attend activities, but a whole host of people. And on the morning of July 18th, 1994, a suicide bomber plowed his, um, he was driving a Renault traffic car bomb, a van actually, that was laden with about 600 pounds of something called ammonium nitrate. Now, the there's a reason I wanted to mention that particular thing, that particular type of bomb material. And anybody who's see seen photos of it will tell you that the destruction was absolutely uh, massive. And it remains today the deadliest attack in Argentina's history. Um, and the reason that I wanted to mention this attack is because it really is um, sort of a window into Iranian-backed terrorism in, in the Western Hemisphere, in our own backyard. And while the investigation got off to a difficult start, um, there was a, a prosecutor named Alberto Nisman, perhaps we'll talk about him uh, a, a little bit more. And he spent 10 years looking at not just what happened on that one fateful day uh, that killed so many people, but he his investigation really looked into who was recruiting uh, the local um, players for this? Who was radicalizing them? Did they use um, the, the various diplomatic embassies and whatnot in the region to carry this out? That's what he did. And the importance of the investigation, it, it, it has become really, I would say, a roadmap uh, for law enforcement today trying to understand um, Iranian penetration, malign penetration into Latin America. Into there, there was a lot of cooperation there also with U.S. law enforcement at one point, right? There was a lot of back and forth with U.S. Justice Department. It, and even the Congress got involved with that case. Exactly. And they got involved because they understood that this was a seminal case. Argentina was like the canary in the coal mine. 
when it comes to Iranian back terrorism. And um, Congress got involved um, for a variety of reasons. They, they, they understood that if it could happen in Argentina, it could surely happen here. It might be useful to mention when I say here, I'm in Washington, D.C., and Iran, um, Iranian-backed uh, proxies uh, sought to bomb a restaurant, an Italian restaurant in Georgetown, which right. for your listeners is uh, not that far from the White House, not that far from Congress, um, right next to uh, the very well-known uh, Georgetown University campus. And their goal was to um, assassinate the uh, Saudi ambassador to Washington. And had that taken place, uh, you know, there could have been a lot of death right here in our, literally in our own backyard. That I remember that, uh, that incident and it's, been hushed up for a while, but I'm glad you mentioned it because not only was it close, but it was happening at a time when there were a lot of high, heightened tensions where people were focusing out in the Middle East, but it kind of brought home uh, the lengths to which the Iranians will go to and their proxies will go to to create problems for the United States and our partners in the world. You know, maybe this is a good opportunity also to mention uh, that some of the same people that were involved in plotting the attack on the AMIA have been involved in plotting other attacks um, right here in the United States. And one of the most well-known ones, but although it hasn't gotten um, much attention because it was foiled, it was uh, uncovered, was actually at at JFK International Airport. One of the people that was um, uh, regarded as uh, um, somebody who plotted the AMIA attack was named Mohsen Rabani. Uh, and he became the cultural attache in Iran's embassy in Argentina. Um, and um, he played a role, reportedly, in recruiting people from Guyana to um, attack the fuel lines at John F. K. International Airport uh, in New York City. During the tr- this was in 2007, and during the um, during the trials, uh, it was uncovered that um, had the plot succeeded, the intention, according to the would-be perpetrators, would have been greater than 9-11. That is, would have been deadlier than 9-11. Can you imagine if that had succeeded? So that's why it's, that's just one of the reasons why it's important for uh, people to understand this isn't just terrorism that happens abroad. This could happen and, ha- and has happened um, uh, right here on American soil. And, and 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 Toby, I think it, they will not give up. They will continue, and that, that that's a good segue to kind of show that it's not just about airplanes. These folks are committed to disruption, and the length to which they will sow evil is 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 unlimited, basically. And they will figure out a way to do it. Which we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, this is a good segue. You mentioned canary in the coal mines. You mentioned these different types of attacks. We're going to talk a little bit about Iranian diplomatic relations in the Western Hemisphere. A lot of people will be surprised to learn how many governments they have contacts with and then how that plays into their master plan in penetrating the Americas. So we'll be, we'll be right back with Toby uh, Dershowitz with the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And we're back. So, Toby, uh, you know, the Iranians, culturally, they don't really have a lot in common with the folks in the Western Hemisphere for a variety of reasons, even though 
Uh, there have been long contacts with our friends in the Middle East and the region from other countries, um, some of it from Syrian, some of it from, of course, from Israel. Uh, and the Iranians, in and out, maybe before the regime took control in 79, it had better relations. But uh, after the revolution, there was a breakdown. But many people would be surprised to know that countries like Argentina, Brazil, Ecuador, of course, Venezuela is not a big surprise because they're an OPEC member, just like Iran, but Venezuela, but Mexico, Nicaragua, Uruguay, at a time even Colombia, uh, they had a non-resident contact with them. All have diplomatic relations with, uh, with the Iranians. And at one point, when Hugo Chavez and Fidel Castro created their Bolivarian alliance and the alternative for democracy in the Americas, kind of like a a counter to the U.S. Uh, OAS system, uh, the Iranians and the Syrians actually have relations with that bloc, which, by the way, it's falling apart now, but it's still there. Why is it? What is it about Iran that you think attracts them? Why does Zarif come over here and meet with these people and hold press conferences and make loans and try and expand that relationship when the region, frankly, for them, shouldn't make much sense? But, but, but what's the real reason behind that, you think? Well, uh, there are lots of reasons, and that's a great question. In terms of Latin America, sometimes um, uh, Iran's ideology and some governments, um, not not as much these days, but um, over the years, has um, uh, you know they, they have found common ground. You talk about the Bolivarian um, arc, um, but you, you know, in other in, in other uh, senses, uh, people are just thinking uh, that. Well, business is business, and uh, they've been tempted to do business even with a terror-sponsoring regime. I think they do that at their peril. Um, but that was certainly the case with Argentina. Argentina actually um, had a nuclear uh, agreement with right. um, with Iran until the United States uh, and others said, you know, this is not a good idea. Um, Iran does not plan to use um, their uh, nuclear capabilities just for, for peaceful purposes, for peaceful civilian purposes. And so Argentina actually um, put a halt to that. And uh, Alberto Nisman, the prosecutor, uh, who I mentioned, believed that that was the sort of the reason um, that, that Iran sought to um, attack Argentina uh, directly. But I think it's important that people do understand that the Iranian people are, are good people, but that the government... Um, um, has an ideology that is uh, and uh, that is revolutionary, that um, is expansionist, that uh, seeks to um, uh, um, grow and transmit its ideology through all kinds of media. In fact, it has um, Spanish language media that uh, people would be shocked to know uh, not only seeks to proselytize, but seeks to really radicalize the population. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's, you know, it's, it's, you've mentioned Nisman a few times and uh, we're going to come to him in one second. But before we do that, because you just reminded me of something and you just said business is business. And uh, when I advise companies as a sanctions lawyer, we tell them, well, business may be, and they tell you that, oh, but we're just doing business. And I go, well, it's not just business. Uh, there, there is a, a, a sorts, uh, all sorts of laws and regulations that you have to comply with, including uh, you hear a lot of people talking about sanctions all the time. Briefly, why do you think sanctions in the region are, are, are make business just not business? Why does it make it an effective deterrent, an effective tool 
to keep these folks, these illicit networks out of the region, out of our banking system? Well, most importantly, um, as the Financial Action Task Force, this organization that monitors money money laundering around the world has determined that it's not safe to do business. So you agree with them, you disagree, it's just not safe to do business uh, with Iran. You never know who the counterparty in Iran is going to be. So you have to look out for your own interests too. Um, And uh, right now, Iran is uh, on the Financial Action Task Force blacklist, along with one other country, which is uh, North Korea. So it's just, it's risky business for you, no matter what you think of um, anything else that Iran might be doing. Exactly. And, and, and for our listeners, when we, when we spoke about earlier that Bolivarian alliance or the alternative, that, that was a network and it's still around. They were hiding money and I still believe they're hiding money in places such as Nicaragua where Daniel Ortega and Iran have very good relations and they use that network to move oil money from Venezuela back to Cuba, back to Iran. And I think at some point we, we're going to uncover uh, those illicit networks and the sanctions are something we tell clients, especially who engage in Latin America in my private practice, that, you know, don't mess around with that. I mean, this is serious business. And as the Panama Papers investigation showed, it, it's going to expose at some point, you know, when Bolsonaro uh, won in Brazil and the Lula networks were exposed and all those people were arrested. I think we haven't seen the end of a lot of those investigations with Odebrecht. And I think that's going to continue. Uh, By the way, jumping, uh, go uh, ahead. Uh, you raise a really interesting point, Jason, because um, whereas Hezbollah used to be known as sort of a militant organization carrying out attacks today, they have evolved into um, to doing business with uh, companies that have uh, a legitimate front, right? And a, a, a legitimate appearance, but in fact, our front companies for narco-terrorism, narco-trafficking, human trafficking, and a whole range of other malign activities. Um, and that's something that we need to understand much better than we do. You're right. And it's not the, the TV Hollywood variety terrorist. Uh, we tell our clients and friends who engage in the region that uh, nowadays these networks, uh, are they were suits and ties. They set up front companies uh, to run what may seem to you as a legitimate businesses. But if you know, as part of your compliance efforts, you've got to dig deeper and you've got to take uh, enhanced, what we call enhanced due diligence to make sure that you're not unwittingly ending up doing business with some a whole cadre of bad actors, especially in places like Nicaragua, Venezuela, which I don't know why you want to go do business there, but people still do. Uh, Cuba, no doubt. Uh, jumping to Neesman for a minute, uh, because I think he, he was on the cusp of some really important um, I never met the man, but I, I, I met some of his lawyers. Uh, I've read a lot about his work. I know you've met with him, interacted with him. Uh, our friends on the Hill uh, did a lot of work with him. A former, you know, former members of Congress like Ross Leighton and her team um, worked closely with them. What was Neesman, uh, that ar- former Argentine prosecutor, uh, on, on the hunt for? And, and, you know, ultimately he died under very suspicious circumstances. I know that's created a lot of... Uh, interesting media buzz in Argentina. It still does. Uh, what happened there with him? And, and are we, is that investigation still alive? Will we see justice for what happened uh, at those two terrorist attacks and other things that Nisman was on the trail for? Um, well, first of all, Alberto Nisman was a very dogged, very determined, very focused prosecutor. And he was very committed to justice. 
Um, and he told me that when he was first asked to take on the investigation, he said he would do it under one condition. Well, what was that? Which was that he would um, undertake this if he were allowed to take the investigation wherever the evidence led. And that seemed like an odd thing at the time, but um, knowing that um, sometimes in Argentina and other, other countries, there's a fair amount of corruption. He wanted to be certain that he was given free reign. And he did just that. He, he took the investigation to where he, where the evidence led, which was uh, that um, at the time, nine people at, uh, associated with the Iranian government were, were fingered in the investigation. He found that evidence. The evidence was so compelling that uh, Interpol uh, issued uh, red notices. Now, red notices are not exactly arrest warrants, but they're sort of akin to to wanted right. uh, notices. Right. And to this day, most of those um, red notices still are in existence. Uh, and that, that's very important because when the the um, the Iranian leaders, including one named Ali Falahian, I'll tell you in a second why I mentioned him, um, were 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 uh, given these red notices. Uh, it's very important because sometimes these these guys travel around the world and they shouldn't be uh, able to do so with impunity. Um, and that that's a deep concern to me. Yeah. And, and by the way, a little footnote to that is that one of the things our foundation does is to um, give legs and teeth to these that issue, because a lot of times they issue these red notices. Some nations abuse red notices, uh, and it's it's including supposed uh, nations who say they don't like Russia. Go figure. But 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 it's it can be an effective mechanism. But just because you issue them doesn't mean that they're going to be executed. You have to kind of follow up, and we we tend to uh, move, follow those quietly and aggressively. Um, and, and hopefully, maybe we can figure out a way to help our friends in Argentina deal with some of this as we move forward. Well, the. Um... So you asked, you know, what happened to him? So he, um, in addition to his his investigation into the AMIA itself, um, he found that uh, Christina Kirshner, who was then president of Argentina and who is now vice president of Argentina, um, he found that uh, Christina Kirshner and uh, almost a dozen others were engaged in an attempted cover-up, not of the uh, invest, not of the bombing itself, but in Iran's role uh, in the investigation. And uh, I know it was a Wednesday when I first got an email from him, as did other people like the New York Times and whatnot. Um, he had filed a complaint with a judge in Argentina saying, in fact, uh, just that, that Christina and 11 or 12 others uh, were involved in a cover-up of Iran's role. Now, the following Monday is when he was going to present those details to a court to to the Congress in Argentina. Well, on Sunday, the day before, he was found murdered, brutally murdered, in his uh, apartment in Buenos Aires. Um, and uh, Christina Kirshner at first said, "Well, uh, that was a suicide." But those of us who really understand, um, he of course he was he did not commit suicide, and nor did the people of Argentina, by the way, buy that. And uh, tens of thousands of people the very next day uh, came out into the streets and protested. Right. Uh, people may remember footage from that. And so to this day, there's an investigation into his death. Um, uh, 
Do you think she ran for office to hide from again? Do you think she ran to she's now the vice president or, or really she's the co-president uh, again? Do you think she ran to hide from prosecution? I mean, she has um, a certain amount of immunity, which is why after she was uh, president, she became um, a member of the Argentine Congress and then from there ran for vice president. Sure, that's what uh, many people suspect. And, and it, it, it sounds reasonable to me that that's why she did that. And now she uh, she is able to put in power people in the justice system who would be sympathetic to her view. And I uh, was speaking to some folks in Argentina. They, they see that the investigation into her role is um, has been going very slowly. And it's hard to imagine uh, that it will uh, result in uh, just real justice, so long as she's vice president right now. Well, you, you and Mark Dubowitz from the Foundation for Defense of Democracy, both of you co-authored a great piece that we're going to share with our, our listeners about this issue and how Argentina's uh, new leadership is kind of dragging all these old corruption and conspiracy cases. And you make a good point in that piece that we should leverage U.S. power and uh, access to the U.S. financial system. And kind of, you know, demand that once and for all these issues be resolved and, and if Argentina doesn't want to play along that we exact uh, some type of, uh, I'm not sure it's retributive justice, but at least a sanction of some sort or not give waivers if, we, if, if that's what it takes for them to just bring this, this case to a close. Right. Actually, there are a number of things that U.S. policymakers can be doing about this. Uh, first of all, we talked about the red notices. Uh, Red notices from Interpol expire about every five years. And so we need to make sure that they continue so long as uh, those who have them are are traveling with impunity. Um, And so we need to continue to work with governments to make sure um, that they're not traveling with impunity. Uh, To um, ensure that those who finance Hezbollah um, people like the Barakat clan in the tri-border area of Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay are no longer able to do that. And I want to just give kudos to the former government of Argentina under President Macri, which sees the assets of these Hezbollah operatives, the, the Barakat clan and other Hezbollah operatives in the tri-border area. Uh, I should mention that on the 25th anniversary of the bombing last year, Uh, Argentina's uh, former government placed Hezbollah on a newly created terrorism registry, which is very similar to the the kind of registry that we have and that other countries have. And I would just say that um, several other governments in the region and in Latin America followed suit. Everybody had seen the problem, and now they've really started to, uh, to take it seriously. Just this week, in fact, the president of Uruguay said that he would also consider uh, putting Hezbollah on a, a terrorism list. This isn't just happening in, in Latin America. Uh, in, in late April, Germany was the most recent European government to designate the entire Hezbollah organization as a terrorist entity. And Jason, if I may, I mentioned uh, there was a reason that I mentioned ammonium nitrate as being the explosive. Um, Germany and, and Europe know very well what Hezbollah is, even if they have hesitated to designate the entire organization. But people say that the reason that Germany finally took this step is because they uh, found uh, warehouses with ammonium nitrate, hundreds of kilograms of ammonium nitrate in these warehouses. Uh, and they started 
understand that um, that um, Iran and Hezbollah could use these uh, use these explosives to carry out attacks uh, on European soil in the same way that they had carried out the AMIA bombing in Argentina. I think it's funny you mentioned the Europeans. Why is it, especially for our listeners who maybe are not as familiar with the, the, the nuances of the Europeans, the JCPOA, or even the Europeans and Hezbollah, that most of them refuse? You know, fortunately, the last few weeks, we've had some big wins in Latin America where we've had governments, including Uruguay, uh, that announced this week, the president of Uruguay announced this week, that they're considering adding Hezbollah to a terrorist list. And we've had other countries that are uh, trying to move in that direction. What is it about Europe? and at least old Europe, that doesn't get with the program and, and, and call Hezbollah what it is, a terrorist organization? Well, it's interesting. Germany still has an arrest warrant out for Ali Falahian, who was one right. of the people yeah. you know, who, um, who we talked about because there was a terrorist attack in 1992 in a restaurant uh, near Berlin called Mykonos. It's a very uh, famous terrorism case. And for about nine months, all of Europe broke, broke diplomatic relations uh, with Iran over it, and they slowly um, uh, reengaged with with Iran. And I think you know what we talked about earlier on the business front. They're still hoping that by engaging the regime um, uh, with business ties, that that would somehow cause their ideology to to disappear. But I think Germany is is and other European countries are finding out that that isn't the case. And there was one other reason, which is that some people have uh, said that there's been a tacit agreement that if Germany and Europe didn't designate Hezbollah as a terrorist entity, that um, Hezbollah would refrain from engaging in terrorism on European soil. Um, and there was sort of this, this hope that that would happen. Um, but what we've seen with the uptick in Europe in recent years, the uptick in uh, mostly foiled attacks, um, but that isn't the case. Several Iranian diplomats have been arrested uh, in Germany and in Austria uh, and, and other countries, and they're coming to appreciate what we in the West understand more fully and have been willing to to call it. We, we've just called it what it is, uh, terrorism. We haven't been hesitated. Uh, we haven't hesitated to uh, to name it that, to recognize that, to understand it for what it is. Yeah. And and these are all good developments. I mean, in Argentina, Paraguay, Honduras have all come out and labeled them what they are. Uruguay may do it soon. So we just got to keep that going. And you never know, maybe Europe will. I mean, Germany, as, as you mentioned, they did start that designation discussion, but they didn't go all the way. I thought they were going to go all the way, but they. It, it's, it's, I guess it's a step in the right direction. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll wrap it up. Um, yeah, just in conclusion, can you tell listeners a little bit about what is the Center on Economic and Financial Power? What, what does that do and how is it important for the work that uh, your organization does? I think it's a fascinating program. Uh, it is, and thanks for asking about it. Uh, there, there are really two ways to think about it. One is to identify um, the malign actors, the illicit activity that's going on in the world and how the U.S. should use all levers, all tools that it has in its toolkit um, to, to confront those, uh, those, th those illicit threats. And, you know, we talked a little bit today about uh, sanctions. That is certainly an important tool in our toolkit. 
But it's also important to understand that the U.S. has positive economic power uh, levers that it can use. And so um, what our center does is it looks at both sides of, of the coin, um, how we need to address the malign actors, but also what levers, economic and financial levers we have to support our allies around the world to strengthen them. And is there something that U.S. policymakers should be doing that maybe we could do a little better, whether just across government? I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. Just curious about, are we making the maximum use of the tools we have uh, and what can we do to improve them, if anything? Sure. Um, that's a that's a great question and a big conversation. I would just say uh, to understand that sanctions um, are not an end in of itself, uh, but uh, they're used to change behavior, to change con conduct. And when that conduct changes, those uh, sanctions can come off. And there have been a couple of cases, many cases where that has happened. Um, but uh, in the case of Iran and Hezbollah, uh, they're very effective tools that can be used. And they should be used um, across the whole of government and by our allies. They're, they're effective when the U.S. uses them, but they're even more effective when they are used also by our allies. So continuing to work uh, with our allies using sanctions uh, of all sorts, um, both financial sanctions, diplomatic sanctions, um, uh, visa sanctions, and, and a whole range of sanctions that are available um, could really serve U.S. national security interests. I agree. I agree. Look, I, I wish we had more time to keep going because I could keep going, but uh, we're out of time. Uh, thank you so much for taking time on a Friday uh, to share with uh, listeners some of your views, important opinions and views about what's happening in the hemisphere. Uh, I do hope that at some point um, Mr. Neesman's work and, and, and the work that he and his team were doing uh, is, you know, it's, it's seen to the end. Uh, there's justice needed. There's hundreds were injured and killed. And the, the men and women who sacrificed that those, those, in those attacks uh, deserve that justice. And I know that America will continue to help them if the Argentinians want to help. We will help them uh, close that ugly chapter in um, Argentina's history. Thank you. Justice can take time. That's one of the lessons learned. And we ignore the threats from Iran and Hezbollah at our own peril. That's right. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And we'll talk again very thank soon. You.